0: And welcome to the latest episode of Gibber's Corner. Over the next hour or so we're going to go through John Gibson's top 10 craziest moments I'm Andrew Musgrove of course joined by John
1: Gibson we're going to count down the top 10 now to give you a bit of insight on what's to come starting with starting with number 10 how things have changed over the years in reporting on Newcastle night from 1966 when I first began doing that right away through to the new technology of today that many of you thought he was going to mention starting somewhere in the early 1900s but no
0: he's not that old naughty boy, naughty boy. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Number 9, we're going to talk about the day that the
1: IRA threatened to shoot George Best. And at number eight, Riot in Europe, when Newcastle United played in the UEFA Cup in Dublin.
0: Sticking with Europe at number seven, Benny Aratroff ringing home
1: to cover the FA Cup final. And at number six, David Ginola making his debut on Tyneside against my other club, Gateshead when he was almost decapitated and put out of action for the rest of the season. Sticking with
0: Gateshead, the day that they made it through to the second round of the FA Cup, beating Paul Bracewell... It's Halifax.
1: And number four, the day Supermac played for England at Wembley. And he scored all five goals. Number three, match-fixing in Malta. And at number two was the 4-4 draw with Arsenal. And at number one, the Dyer Bowyer fist fight at St James's Park.
0: That is what's to come in the next hour, or so I would batten down the hatches because this is a long one, but probably the most enjoyable one we've done so far. So pop on that kettle and tune in to Gibbo's Corner. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm glad to say that I'm sitting with John Gibson. We're not doing this over Zoom or Google or whatever, Skype. We're actually in my kitchen. We are at a social distance. Um, It is only 20 to 12, so we're not in the pub having a socially distanced pint. (laughs) Yeah, it is a shame, John, but we are enjoying a cuppa and we've had this episode of Gibb 's Corner planned in for quite a while. It's taken uh, a bit more research than the ones previously. We hope it's going to be something a bit different. It may or may not be inspired by a certain BBC TV show slash podcast. But uh, if Gary Lineker wants to complain, he can write his complaints on a postcard to me and I will ignore them. John,
1: um, how are you doing, first of all, with this? I'm good, I'm good. Um, Seesaw with Newcastle United, up and down, but good. But good. That's good. And are you surviving lockdown? Um, Uh, Only just uh, getting a bit stir-crazy at times. It would be lovely to get back out, missing the football, the real football, where you're actually in a stadium of 52,000. If ever you appreciate what a crowd does to, to a football match, it's when you ain't got them.
0: Certainly. So let, I'm going to let you introduce then what we're doing today because we did, we racked our brains yet again to to try and better the last one, which was Willie McFall, and
1: yeah. Willie himself enjoyed the podcast. Yeah, it was lovely to get a phone call from him and, uh, down in uh, the deepest south, who was at his son's to say, Gibbo, I just had to say thanks a lot. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, he said some of the stories fascinated him because he'd forgotten about them until I, uh, and Monker, come on and did exactly the same thing, Bob Moncur, so happy, happy, happy times. This is... This is a bit different, the idea... Um, really born by yourself and for me to think about was 10 of the craziest things I've had a report on uh, over all the years I've done reporting with Newcastle United. And uh, it's been fun coming up coming up with 10. I thought I wouldn't be able to find 10. In the end, I'd eliminate some out of the 10.
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to plug your book, in Gible, The Gible Files, because a lot of these stories, a lot of the stories we've covered over the last sure. two and a half years or so will be in there. And I think this uh, this list can be made up of of, great, of the great stories you've written in that book. Um, let's start with number ten, and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tribute to how things used to be, sure. um, and how
1: things have changed in the, the decades you've uh, been a journalist. Well, well, absolutely. I came back to the Chronicle from Fleet Street, nineteen sixty six, which seems an awful long time ago, and it was the dark ages in terms of of reporting. It was. You know the the advancement that's been made from those days clanging away on a, a typewriter and on a telephone, direct to copy takers, to what new technology has meant for us now, from when I first started covering Newcastle United and the World Cup and the Olympic Games, when if we were on the other side of the world I used to have to get up in the middle of the night, whatever time was 9 o'clock here in Newcastle if that was 4 in the morning, 3 in the morning, I had to get up to make the phone call to put my stuff across of course in recent times it's just a press of a button as we know on a laptop and the stuff has winged its way to Newcastle but back in 66 in can you imagine these days A Premier League ground That would have no phones in the press box Never mind power points and, and mini TV screens To show you a goal again To see whether somebody's offside I mean Leeds United In those days were the champions it, They were the great great side In this country The Don Revy side of Bremnan Giles And Big Jack Charlton Etc Top of the pops Yet they, unlike St James's Park, didn't have phones in the press box. The way that was, I was desperate when the fixture list come out for it to be a midweek game uh, at Ellen Road because if it was, it was night time, I could go and watch the game and do the report afterwards. If it was a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock, which it often was, I would have a runner because we produced a pink in those days which was the 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 normal running match reports and what we had to do it, it it leads is that down in the press room in the barrels of ellen road there would be an open line to the chronicle and i had to write out the match report in longhand, on a piece of paper, in the press box, a little lad who was earning sixpence uh, in his spare time off school on a Saturday afternoon would grab the sheets from me, run downstairs to the phone, read it across to the guy that was sitting on uh, the copy desk at 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 our place, who would take it down on phones with a a headpiece on, and... The whole match was done in in that way and writing it out in longhand while trying to watch the game, have kids take it down and send it across was absolutely uh, desperate. And of course, we went to Europe very shortly after that, coming across in in 66, we went to Europe 68, 69. Uh, A dream come through Europe? No, a nightmare really in terms of physically doing the job. For example, the year after we won, the European First Cup, we drew into Milan, which is absolutely incredible. Great, great game, home and away. The only trouble was, we stayed in the village called Isper on Lake Maggiore in a hotel um, where... Believe it or not, there wasn't any telephones in the rooms. There was only one telephone in the whole hotel, which, is, which was on reception desk uh, downstairs. There was a dozen pressmen uh, covering Newcastle United, apart from players and everybody wanting to make calls home. There was a dozen pressmen. We had to join a queue at reception to keep moving forward and phone our stuff across to... The Chronicle, in my case. I used to try to fix time calls with the Chronicle, so I knew they were going to ring at 2 in the afternoon. To give us a... The calls were coming through up to two hours late from Newcastle. I mean, it's unbelievable to think of it in, in these days. Um, and then, if it, because we're on Lake Maggiore, if there was any... Um, uh, fog at all or, or mist over the lake whole the communications went down and you couldn't get a call out whatsoever one day a uh, fella called Harrison was, bless him was phoning Tyne television he managed to get through to Tyne T's television to give his report for that evening uh, that evening news and and because I was in such desperation, Time Tees actually took down all my Evening Chronicle copy uh, over the phone because there was a line there, and then they phoned it through to the Chronicle. It was absolutely mayhem days. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the way it was. And the, the match that really got it home to us is when we drew Pexy Dozer the year after winning. The uh, first cup. Not Ujpest Doza, who played in the final, but Pexi Doza. An absolute, utter nightmare from begin to end. The the place is on the border with Hungary. There's no uh, airport in Pexi, or there wasn't in those days. So we flew into Budapest. Pexi was only 100 miles away, but we were in a bus which resembled a cattle truck. It took four hours to get from Budapest to Pexi Doza. When we got down there, we were split into two hotels. Neither of the hotels had uh, any phones in the bedrooms. Neither of the hotels had any restaurants. We had to go out to eat in, in the village at the end of the day. When it came to the match... Um, and we'd won 2-0 at home against Peksy our second leg was out there we'd murdered them but only 2-0 which was always uncomfortable we went out there the ground, how on earth these people got into Europe I don't know, the ground had no floodlights they had. They were, it was just a little hick town and they'd qualified for Europe no floodlights whatsoever so it had to be a one thirty kickoff in the afternoon for the game to take place that was a catastrophe for me because it meant a running report to the Evening Chronicle for the late editions, ending up with the late-night finals. It was like doing a Saturday report, a runner. They had no press box, as well as no floodlights. So what they did, they put little round tables, like in a pub, you know your little pub tables? They put little round tables round a track, a running track that went round the pitch. They put all these little round tables on the track and they put a phone on the table with a long, long wire, which went way off into some building about 500 uh, yards away uh, and was plugged in. And we had a report from there. Now we were right up on the, on the touchline and there was one stage in while I was reporting. John McNamee, who was quite a ferocious centre in half in his own way, when there was sliding tackle on one of the on their winger who was trying to charge down the wing, and not only could I feel it for the sake of the winger, but I could actually hear it because. He slid completely under my table, and he was lying under my table with the table going skew if Was I was trying to hold the phone down and and continue to do report as if as if nothing was happening, and and, it, and of course, they, they went two nil up. Pexy Dozer, against all odds went two nil up. The crowd went absolutely crackers because they thought they were going to be murdered. They were playing a top side. Uh, in their eyes, out of England, and they're expected to be murdered. And they come running onto the track, the supporters gabbling to me away in um, Hungarian... One guy started uh, putting popcorn. He emptied his, his, all his popcorn into my mouthpiece of my phone while I'm trying to send a, re- a report over to the Chronicle. And dear old Ivor Bordis, who was there covering for the Journal in those days, who was the old Newcastle United, Man City, England, International, had actually rescued me in mid-sentence from all these mad Hungarians. Um, and the game went on into extra time and then into penalties and worst case scenario and penalties we lost to penalty shootout 3-0 and um, we, we didn't even score with with all our three efforts we didn't score they scored all three the referee then took us all off game over best of five penalties all finished I'm desperately trying to explain this shock sensation which was In European terms, the equivalent to when we lost to Hereford in in the FA Cup. I'm trying to explain all this. In the meantime, the referee has decided uh, off his own bat that the five penalties have got to be taken, that a minimum of five penalties have got to be taken. The Newcastle players are in the shower by now. He went in the dressing room and said... we've got to go back out and take two more penalties. The only two people that hadn't actually gone in the showers, luckily one of them was McFall, the goalkeeper, and the other was uh, Van Clark. So they had to go out and take our final two penalties while McFall also went and goal for theirs. And unbelievably, our three main penalty takers all haven't missed. Both McFall and Clark scored with their penalties, but we lost 5-2 on penalties. Crazy, crazy match and crazy, crazy way, you know, later on you're sitting at World Cup finals watching, um, you know, the the biggest game on the planet with all technology and everything absolutely wonderful and you thought you're sitting in Europe in a ground that hasn't got floodlights, hasn't got a press box on a little pub table trying to do a running report with a Newcastle centre-half under the table Trying to get out, untangle himself, and get back to the game. Um, crazy, crazy days. But I'm, I mean, I must admit, there's a, there's a lot of affection when I when I look back on on those days. And of course, that was the time Newcastle had three successive seasons in Europe and never once got what I would call genuinely beaten. We won the, the cup the first year. The second year we lost to Pexie, but it was on a penalty kick off after tying. 2-2 uh, two, two on aggregate. In the following year, we, when we got knocked out again, we tied, but we got knocked out on away goals. So Newcastle went three years without actually being genuinely beaten over two legs. And it was quite a phenomenal, wonderful, naive time, but, but great.
0: Sounds a surreal experience, Uh, popcorn as you're trying to do your match report. I can't really imagine that happening uh, today or, well, before lockdown anyway. Uh, You never know what happens uh, when we get back at the stadiums. We're going to move on to number nine now. And I think the player that this concerns is a player that many will put at the top of the list of a player they'd love to have seen in their prime. A player also, which I think when you look at characters of the game and you think, what if... They'd managed just to focus on the football. Uh, you know, if this fella had had kept his his palate dry, we would have been talking about him. And it's I, would, I say in a much higher um, kind of accolade or higher praise but we're given. It's George Best. I don't know how much
1: how how higher you can go when you talk about that. No, you couldn't go go higher than Bestie. What you could have done, you could have lasted longer than Bestie, and that's what would have happened. But uh, you know, the idea of George uh, not having a a drink is like uh, trying to spot the Red Sea. It wasn't going to happen. And so many extroverts throughout uh, football life have been wild man. As well, from Maradona to Best to, to Gaza to a certain extent, it seems to go hand in hand. And we talk about wild men. I think this
0: story kind of just sums up George Best, mm. you know. Um, and we'll, we'll, it's George Best and the IRA, IRA threatening to shoot George Best. And it just happened that the game was up at St. James's Park. Yeah, um, of course. So, having it researched it, I knew a bit about it. But then when you reread it, and we're going to tell it here, it's just a bizarre story. It's like something out of a script because of the way it ends as well. George Best doesn't get shot for those wondering. Um, but just the way it
1: ends with George Best getting the goal, it's just, it's, it's a brilliant story. But he, he, he attracted all sorts of attention and did, as superstars really can, he did the impossible. I mean, I worked with George many, many times. up here in the northeast and i mean i remember when he he brought a a miss world up to the northeast to chesley street when we were working there and um he came in late as george always did dramatic entrance and with a manic grin on his face and i knew straight away i was in the deepest of troubles he was already two sheets to the wind and um we had to go through a long dinner before we got to our after dinner question and answer session and then um, it was like you probably a lot of you probably saw him on the terry wogan show when he come on two parts to the wind and and terry wogan had to cut him down and it was a little bit like that at chester street on other occasions when he when he worked sober on stage he was wonderful very funny very warm uh, type of guy but The story that I was wanting to tell, which is, as you say, quite amazing, happened in October 1971, which is at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and uh, Manchester United had come up to play at St James's Park. Now, someone claiming to be from the IRA phoned the police and said, if George Best plays this afternoon, he will be shot on the pitch, shot and killed. Um, Now quite a dramatic situation the St James's Park was much more open ground in those days than it is today where there's the high rise stands and it's sort of all enclosed if you like it was very open there was big houses at the popular side which stood above the, the the height of the the pylons People could have easily got on the roof then and had pot shots within St. James's Park. Anything like that was a possibility which heightened the tension. The Manchester United manager at the time was Frank O'Farrell, and when the police informed him at the Manchester United Hotel up here what they'd been told. Um, and that they were going to draft extra police into St James's Park that afternoon, O'Farrell called Bestie in and give him the option of <coughs> playing or not playing. Um, George said that if he didn't play, then that was open sesame for anyone to threaten him at any stage of his life. And when would he play for Manchester United again? It's like giving in to terrorists, isn't it, when they take hostages. The idea is that you don't and you bluff it out because once you do, that's it for good. So he said that he would play now... The big problem was they tightened the tension, and I shouldn't have, but the Manchester United coach in the hotel had been broken in. When they went down to all get on the coach, the coach had been broken into overnight. It is something (laughs) out of a TV show. You couldn't write that. I mean, it's ridiculous. It had been broken into overnight. So, of course, the tension was, what's happened? Have have they been trying to plant something? Have they been doing something in preparation for trying to, to, to get at Bestie? At this stage, nobody knew about the best thing. This all came out later on, almost immediately. What happened then was the two detectives actually got on the Manchester United coach with Bestie, who normally sat by the window. He took a window seat so that he could wave to all the punters and everything when he got to the ground because... All the punters, the Newcastle United punters, all wanted to say, hi, Bestie. All the girls that mightn't be interested in football were there for George Bestie, was the fifth Beatle. Um, he wasn't allowed to sit by the window because, quite obviously, they didn't know when the, the attempted uh, shooting would happen. Would it happen on the coach or during the match? Um, so he wasn't allowed to sit. He had to sit in an aisle seat. Um, when they got within distance within sight of St James's Park. Bestie was actually thrust onto the ground in the aisle and lay face down on the floor in the aisle of the coach with a detective on each side of him as as the coach drew into St. James's Park. When it pulled outside the main entrance, all of a sudden best comes sprinting out the coach first, with two guys, everybody saying, "Who are they?" with them? there were detectives and straight up in, into the ground. And um, they had extra detectives within the ground, with binoculars scouring all the rooftops of the houses around St. James's Park to see if there was any marksmen up there.
0: At, at which point did you realize that something might be off?
1: Well, by now there was whispers going on um, immediately. This is before the game and I'm sitting there reporting on the game and all of a sudden there's, why is there so many coppers around today? Uh, In the first reaction, well, well, besties here. Uh, All right, okay, meaning fans, girls, football fans, everybody wanting a piece of them. But when you saw the police around uh, the ground and then you occasionally saw policemen... It was armed. And you suddenly, he. daisy this isn't holding back the girls from wanting his autograph or to give him a kiss. Or what's it all about? Uh, so there was that uneasy feeling. Um, and when he came out, I mean... The one thing about George was, while he was a superstar, he wasn't a poser. He worked hard. He, he, he worked back. He worked. He went looking for the ball. He didn't just, sometimes with lovely David Ginola, you know, he stood on the wing, hair-drying, blowing his head right, waiting for somebody to get the ball, give it to him and he would do his tricks and stick it in the back of the net. George worked hard as all Manchester, the Manchester United superstars of, of Ferguson's age when he had Beckham in, in gigs and they worked the exceptionally hard. But this day, was running about non-stop. I, I said, honestly, is it the Duracell bunny. This this guy he was everywhere. Mind you, if I had somebody that was about to shoot me, I'd keep running all over the place. You don't want to be a standing target. You're not going to stand still and let somebody line up against you. Inevitably, inevitably, I mean, he couldn't write it, could he? Inevitably, Manchester United win one, they lose, scored the goal. George Best scored the goal. Um... You know, it, it was it was really bizarre. And by the time the game was over, it was beginning to filter. And best, had left the ground because they got him out of there so double quick. It was untrue. They hadn't time to mop his face or the rest of the Manchester United team before the police had them in the in the coach in a way. and away. Um, and I mean, I I spoke to to George later on that night because I, I worked with him an awful lot, and he said. Uh, luckily mine was the only shot on target he said when i when i spoke there was a lot of black humor went about um, in those days and of course joe harvey and this is so politically incorrect but things weren't politically incorrect in those days in, in the press conference afterwards when told about what had happened with george said I wish I had shot the little bugger. Uh, but uh, in those days, that was humour. In these days, of course, it would, wouldn't would produce a humour. headline. It would produce uh, outrage. Uh, but it was, it was black humour, and George had the same thing. But uh, it's quite, quite incredible. And let's be truthful. It takes guts. If you're told that you're going to get shot, and you know because you're a, a Protestant, which George was, and it's the IOA, he, he was a genuine target because, you know, it's like the king or the queen, or, he was the biggest thing in, in world football at this time. So he was a legitimate target. And... Um, Whatever the police do, you cannot have two detectives running around the pitch with them on the pitch. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a test of character, isn't it? Because some would
0: instantly just say, I'm not playing. Correct. I am. I'm, I'm going back home. But I imagine with George and it, it sounds like with George, it kind of just it pushed him on. And he, he seemed without just to say, do you know what? I'm here to play football and that's what I'm going to do.
1: Without a shadow of doubt, doubt. And, and, of course... Cranks, and I'm not talking about it, were on to George the whole time about everything. There was, the club were getting phone calls all the time. It's quite amazing today because there isn't somebody with the George Best appeal within the English game today. Because this guy was bigger than a pop star. He looked, he was Better looking than the four Beatles and had the Beatles haircut, cut, etc., etc. His ability was wonderful. He had a lovely Irish accent. The girls absolutely adored him. He was a superstar. That a, a bit, the, the only one that's really done that in this country since, George, was David Beckham at his time. And I travelled with him to World Cups with England and David Beckham with the girls when we were out in Japan. The reaction of David Beckham amongst the girls of Japan was absolutely staggering. And it was a bit like the reaction of girls to George Best in this country at that time. But there was super bravery uh, about him. But as he said to me afterwards, Gibbo, if I took every threat I get seriously... I would never play football again because I and I would never go out the house again. And I would never go to a nightclub again. And I would never go to a pub again. And nobody was going to keep George out of a nightclub and a pub. That yeah, what a character, such a such a sad
0: way that he um yes. that he passed on, wasn't it?
1: Uh, and and a sad way that his football uh, life come to a, a, an early end in terms of ability. But people also forget that when you're a star. Um, of that magnitude you start so early you still you still get relatively a long career because by it's 17 you're almost a superstar so if you only do 10 years if you finish at 27 it's far too early finish but you've had as long career as some ordinary players do have but it was was a, a great tragedy and it it was a sadness to see him later in life at Fulham Fleet and Lee at Hibernian up in Scotland, etc. Um, etc it, it was sadness to see a once great player playing from memory, not from ability, but um, privileged to see
0: that man. Sticking with the 70s then, and we're on to number seven now of your top ten crazy moments. Yes. We are we're going to look at a riot and not the riot that many may expect you to mention where it could have been the riot against Glasgow Rangers which yeah. I think must be the most popular riot of this podcast because we've mentioned it I think half a dozen times. We're going to go for a different riot. We're going to yeah. go with the riot
1: over in uh, Dublin. In Dublin, yeah, yeah. They yeah. When Newcastle played Bohemian in the UEFA Cup, not the first cup, the Everco- UEFA Cup of 1977-78. It was... Um, Very traumatic time for Newcastle in the history at that stage because um, Gordon Lee had been manager of Newcastle, having taken over from Joe Harvey. Uh, The previous season, he'd done a runner from the club. He'd got Newcastle up to fifth and them going very well. He'd controversially sold Terry Hibbert. He'd controversially sold Supermac. Yeah. and when you do things like that, you've got to see the job out because they're so controversial. The man that made the goals and the man that scored the goals, uh, you see the job out. But he took to his toes and went off to Everton. And Dickie Dennis was put, in, who was his number two, uh, was elevated to manager purely on player power, the players that wanted him in. Um, And he got the job in time for the next season. Incredibly, when that season got underway, uh, after an opening day draw, Newcastle lost the next 10 First Division games, got eliminated from the League Cup and got eliminated from Europe and Dickie Dennis got the sack, of course. Um, uh, But it was... In amazing time, we drew Bohemian, who, while they were the topside in the Republic of Ireland, were part-timers at the time, so it was an easy introduction for Newcastle. The first leg was away from home. In those days, I was privileged, if you like. Whoever Newcastle drew in Europe, I went over. Immediately the draw was made to suss out the land... To file reports in the Chronicle, this is where Newcastle are going. These are the star players, this is what the ground's like, etc. Because the fans hung on every word and wanted to go out and see the games themselves. I did that when they won the first cup. I was still doing it when Bows came along in seventy-seven, seventy-eight. And I went over to Dublin and I, I I got a little feeling that things might be slightly different because I met the I stayed in the hotel just on my own. Immediately, draw was made. The Bose officials come down to the hotel, wine and dine me. They were wonderful, but come midnight. After uh, several um, Guinnesses, the um, atmosphere became slightly different, and it became a little bit of us and them, a little bit of we're Irish and you're British. And then, um, and the next morning, when everybody was sober, it was back to a wonderful world. But I thought, whoops, the wrong thing said at the wrong time. What's it going to be like? Um, anyway, we went out there for the match itself. The match was tame. It was a note draw, it was a very tame match, but the crowd were anything but tame. Uh it, the game was at Dalamont Park and the press box was three quarters of the way down the side of the, the touch line, towards significantly the end where the all the home fans made their own. Um now All the fans were carrying the tricolour and waving the the, 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 uh, Republic flag behind the goal, supportive of the team, everything wonderful, nothing wrong with that. The game's underway, it's keep going. The Newcastle fans were just behind the press box, just behind me, who was in the backboard of the press box. And unknown to me, the guy behind me, in all innocence, not realising what it meant because he hadn't bothered looking up the situation, raised a flag to Wave, which had mags uh, written down the stripe. The only trouble was the, the flag was a Union Jack. Well, you raise a Union Jack in Dublin it in the 70s when the tricklers going 50 to the dozen behind the goal was like a red rag to a bull. And the next thing we knew, half bricks were being thrown towards the Union Jack. Now, two things was the trouble then. One was because I was just in front of the Union Jack and their their aim wasn't uh, too good and the bricks were falling short. They were falling on top of me. The second was that somebody decided with one of the bricks from behind the goal, they would chin Mike Mahoney, the Newcastle goalkeeper, who happened to be playing at that end at the time in front of their fans. So he went down like a lead balloon in, in the goal mouth hit on the back of the head while he's watching play take naturally the the game was stopped Newcastle goalkeeper's down he's been he's been brained the referee takes all the players off um, the guarder who is the police out there the, the Irish police had to try to restore peace there was 11 of them Inside the ground, we were told there's 11 police inside the ground with a 25,000 crowd. So you can tell how easy it was going to be to uh, control or wrestle control away from the riding fans with 11 coppers there. The ref had them off. I was talking to the office to alert them to what the story was going to be. I was actually crouching on knees beneath the table. Support and I could hear the bricks dropping on top of the table above my head, because they were raining them in on the Newcastle fans. I later spoke to Mike Mahoney. Mike Mahoney was a great, great, lovely friend of mine. Uh, he lived just round the corner from me in in Wickham. I lived in Wickham at the time. He lived just round the corner. We used to go out for a pint during the week to uh, a karaoke place up in Burnerfield in a in a pub down there. A lot of fun. Great guy. And I, I, I said to him, he was a real Bristolian, you know, with the accent, like the, the Wurzels, with the O-I-O-I. Oh, oh, I. And I said, yeah, big softy. I said, if, if, do you think if somebody had thrown off a brick at Big Jack, I said, he would have caught it in his teeth, spitted it out and nutted it back into the crowd. And you're, you're lying on the ground, rolling round, with your brains knocked out and you haven't got any brains. Couple of,
0: couple of questions there then. First of all, how stiff of a drink did you have after that game?
1: Um, well, I thought it was only necessary to boost the sale of Guinness um, in, in Ireland. And of course, uh, yes, an awful, an awful lot. And uh, so did Mahoney. We was wanted to go straight to bed because, you know, when you hit on the head, you could get dizzy or whatever. But they didn't realise he was a Bristolian and he, he was a bit of a hard case and he didn't go straight to bed. He went and had a few pints with me in the hotel. Secondly, what song do you sing on the karaoke? Uh, Lost in France was our favourite at the time, which was one of the... Um, I mean, to us, we sounded magnificent, but it might be because it was very late in the evening and we probably sounded absolutely horrific to everybody else, but because it was a Newcastle United's current goalkeeper in some village, it, it wrote in a local paper, we were relatively well-received by the punters in, in those days. But um, I don't know if I had an effect on Dublin. Because the first two times I went there professionally for football was this riot with Newcastle United. And then I went over for England, with England, to Dublin to play the Republic of Ireland. Jack Charlton was the manager of the Republic of Ireland at the time. Uh, After 21 minutes, David Kelly, the Newcastle centre-forward, who uh, scored an awful lot of goals here when they played in the second tier of football, put the republic ahead in 21 minutes and england had the backing of a group which were absolutely horrendous a group of, of neo-nazis called uh, combat 18 and it was pre-planned that if the republic scored they were gonna they ripped up all the seats and threw them out the pitch I mean the Irish fans were absolutely magnificent because if they'd responded to the, the louts, the English louts, we would have been in huge trouble. They didn't. They stayed where they were, in the ground, and but the game was abandoned, couldn't take place, another big riot. Old Newcastle United manager in charge of Republic. Old Newcastle United Centre Forward scored for the Republic another riot I don't know the common denominator whether it was me or what it was quite but uh, twice to Dublin two major riots So sticking with you John we're on
0: to the first cup final which in itself was a fantastic and wonderful uh, moment occasion for Newcastle sadly still remains the last major cup Newcastle one Newcastle fans had seen Um, but we're going to stick with a moment directly after the final whistle which is a fantastic
1: moment and kind of goes back to what you said about the way things have changed. Uh, Absolutely. This was after the second leg in Budapest 1969, of course, which was the the greatest comeback or one of the greatest comebacks because they were 2-0 down at half time and could have been about to lose the trophy and 45 minutes later had won the leg 3-2 and the the trophy 6-2 on aggregate and um, so the elation mixed with relief felt by everyone were players newcastle fans and the newcastle press in the press box was enormous the first thing i could think of Was let's get downstairs and let's celebrate. And now, what was different about those days was that it was automatic that I could go straight downstairs and would go into the dressing room. And now, can you imagine that today? Yeah, well, isn't, it, isn't it awful that you you've, you were part of the team, if you like, and part of the club? So I'm lashing downstairs anyway, Um and I'm thinking, I've got to get down. Apart from getting quotes, you just want to get in the champagne and you watch what they were pouring into this tulip-like cup that looked uh, like a yard of ale, and we were drinking it out and it was pouring all over the suits. But on the way through the corridor downstairs, I suddenly saw... Benny Arantoff, completely in his full gear, he had just run off the pitch, sweat pouring down him, and he's on a phone, which you've got to remember then as well that there wasn't, uh, you didn't have your own mobile telephone. He was on the phone in a coin box outside the dressing room speaking to somebody, and he looked quite sheepish and embarrassed when I saw him, and I just said, hey, Benny, top man, well done, because he'd scored the equaliser in the second half equalize on the night to make it two two. Um and he's on the telephone, and I just thunder past him into the dressing room, giving it fifteen out of ten, with it drinking out the cup, singing songs, talking to Joe Harvey and John McNamy. It was both of their birthdays that particular day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So after a little while the door opens and in comes Benny, still in his in, in his his gear, of course, and I sauntered over to him. I said, Hey What was all that about? What are you doing on the blower? You should have been in here getting the old ale down your neck. It turns out that he was phoning a Danish paper back home in Copenhagen, Copenhagen to file a match report on... The cup final? Can you a European cup final? Can you imagine Wayne Rooney phoning the Manchester Evening News at the end of a huge Manchester United game, or Steven Gerrard phoning the Liverpool Echo to tell them how his side had got on? Um, incredible, really. Thankfully, though, I think you got to the phone first by this stage I'm still collecting my quotes and thinking I'll hang back because the more they have to drink the more wild the quotes will be but the amazing, and I said to Benny, I said oh so you filed your report what did you say about our second goal which of course was scored by him and he, he was he was very, I said oh he was it under a byline Benny so you said then I collected the ball from Monker, beat seven plate and stuck it in the top net like, you know and he, he was quite embarrassed about it but it was it was a naive moment it's a moment that would never happen these days and benny was that sort of character he was a totally different man to the what the professional footballers are these With days two seconds i'll just ring up jamal
0: the cells and just say hey mate can you just uh you just send me a bit of copy for the cron
1: <laughs> can you write it's a, I, I, you can you can just imagine i mean benny he'd been quite incredible he was an accountant with the Copenhagen council that uh, that's that's what he was as an adult and he played as an amateur uh football out there he he played well enough he was like the Jewish bunny he wasn't hugely skillful but he was up and down up and down up and down workhorse uh he got a transfer to Greenwich morton in scotland um who were it typical scottish club that thought we'll raid scandinavia and, and see good footballers get them over but they were a selling club we'll get them over and we'll sell them on at a profit and that's how we stay alive uh Grenwick morton so they brought him over he married a scottish girl while he was playing for Greenwich morton newcastle had huge links not only with Scotland, but with Morton itself, because Hal Stewart, who ran Morton, was the cousin of Lord Westwood, who was the Newcastle United chairman. So we get a tip off straight away that this guy looks a bit tasty, yeah, you'd be able to sign him. We immediately know the loophole for getting him into this country then, because you couldn't sign foreign players. The loophole was this guy had lived in Scotland and played in Scotland and married a British girl, so that therefore his registration would be accepted by the Football League if he signed for Newcastle. And that's how we got him. And it was quite amazing in those days because Newcastle... I mean, foreign players was almost unheard of over here at the time, yet Newcastle had been in some ways trailblazers, because in the 50s they had George and Ted Robledo, who were Chilean, um, who uh, played in our cup-winning sides. Uh, the reason we got them, of course, is while they were born in Chile, their mum was from Barnsley, and the mum brought them back when they were school kids into Yorkshire, so there was much... Yorkshire guys is the word trillions but nonetheless there were trillions. and then my a, a, a Danish international in Benny Aventov now it's find the English player in, in uh, Premier League sites in those days it was uh, it was uh, amazing but you wouldn't that was the naive the wonderful naivety of uh, football in those days that on a European Cup final, one of the winners was filing match report back home to his paper. Fabulous! Did he
0: give an answer? Was it was it his byline on the on the report? Yes, yes,
1: yes it was it was his name. But he, uh, but he hadn't co- he hadn't said I got the ball. He said Benny Avantov got the ball. I said so. You've said Benny Aventoff scored the goal. And then when you look up at the byline, it's by Benny Aventoff." Uh, he did. Yes, just a coincidence. Absolutely, we just happened to have the same name common name like Jim Smith or Joe Bloggs isn't it on to number six and we'll fast
0: forward 25 26 Mm. years or so Mm. um, and we've talked about George Best who was was fantastic and you referenced David Ginola while we were talking about you know fantastic magical players and it's Ginola now we're going to talk about
1: and your your second love in many ways, or maybe your third, I'll let you I'll let you call yeah, it uh, yeah. but Gateshead. I mean my love has always been Newcastle United. That's what I was born to and and, and cradle to grave is literally true, like every other Jody, Um but in my days as a kid, uh I could hardly afford to go to the Newcastle matches at home, never mind the away ones. I I didn't used to get the tram or the trolley bus to St James's Park. I used to walk from Benwell to St James's Park, which took the thick end of three quarters of an hour to get to the home games. So obviously I couldn't afford to go to the away games. So what I did, I being a football fanatic, I used to walk to the big lamp the same as I did for Newcastle United, but I would turn right drop down, go over the Red Yule Bridge and go and watch Gateshead in the old Third Division North. Then when I become a reporter on the Evening Chronicle, my first job before I went to Fleet Street was to cover Gateshead uh, as a, a football club, as a young cub reporter. And I was covering them when they got thrown out of the Football League. And, and then when they were non-league side and Bobby Mitchell was the manager. So that Gateshead had always been my second love. Then I by Gateshead and non Gateshead, and um, that's where this story comes in, which was back on August the 7th, 1995, In the background to it, I'd just taken over as the owner of Gateshead, and the background to it, that when you're playing non-league, and we were in the conference, which is one division down from the Football League, of course, um, I'd been part of the Magpie group that had run the two-year campaign, for john hall to take over at st james's park and was the start of the entertainers and kevin keegan and those wonderful times because of the help i'd given to john in that campaign to oust the board at newcastle united he became my main sponsor his company common hall developments my main sponsor gates it um, and as part of that deal he said, we will play you on a pre-season friendly. Now, if Newcastle United normally play a non-league side in the North East on a pre-season friendly, they send the reserves or their juniors over. Um, but because he was my main sponsor and because it was me, he told Kevin Keegan that you're going to send the first team over. Send the first team over because they need the money. Gates at Football Club need the money. Now... The incredible thing was that Newcastle in those days, like now, played all the friendlies away from home, not at St James's Park, and then they came home for the start of the season. Uh, so the only game they were going to play on Tyne side that pre-season was at the international stadium at Gateshead. Unbelievably, they just signed two of the greatest players of the entertainers' era, David Ginola and Les Ferdinand. Who were then going to make the debut for for Newcastle United, that Hindsight debut at Gateshead, And within twenty-four And I said to Newcastle United, we need to get out that you're sending the first team because fans are going to think the reserves are coming across. I'll still get six thousand. That's great, but you've got to say you're sending your first team. And said we'll do better, and that we'll get Kevin Keegan to announce because not just this club secretary or whatever that he's bringing the first team across, which he did. Within 24 hours of Kevin Keegan saying the first team is going to play at Gateshead in a pre-season friendly, we sold out 11,750 tickets. We made an all-ticket game, sold out. It is still its record attendance because that's as big they haven't increased the um, the capacity of the international stadium uh, so this and it was for pre-season friendly uh, not for an FA Cup tie or whatever, it's still the record I guess we were the 750 the Gateshead fans and the 11,000 were the Newcastle fans um, and it was a wonderful coup, can you imagine me, uh, my love of Newcastle United and as my backup club, my love of Gateshead. And I'm sitting in the director's box watching my two teams play each other, and I own one of those teams. It was the most fabulous moment in my life as a fan, without a shadow of doubt, so proud to be sitting there in that situation. I went down into our dressing room before the game and and, and addressed the players and the manager and said, look, lads, this isn't, you know, this isn't like... A competitive match, they can win obviously by as many as they want to if they turn it on. I said, in fact, if we get a corner before you take it, do a lap of honour round the pitch because that's as close as we're going to get today. But it doesn't matter. What we've got to remember is that these guys playing today at Gateshead are going to pay your wages for the rest of the season because the money we make. We'll do exactly that. So treat them with respect. Don't do anything silly. There's nothing to be won by, cutting players in half, and etc., etc. It's not even an FA Cup tie. Right, boss, no problem. That's the way it'll be. So I'm upstairs, sitting proudly in the director's box, and Sir John Hall and the other people are there, and uh, Kevin Keegan's down on the touchline, etc., etc., and we kick-off, <coughs> And within quarter of an hour, we had a, a midfield player called Markine, who loved to tackle. He was a good player at my level, and um, he'd gone off and played it in, in the football league all over the place. But he loved to tackle, and um, he decided whether he'd forgot the warning or whether it was just his natural instincts or whatever. But he he took Ginola off by the top of the stockings uh, with a tackle and. David, being David and being Gallic and whatever, did four forward rolls uh, across the pitch. This wonderful aircut was going in six different directions as, as he rolled there, and I thought... We're going to have to take a sack on. He's been decapitated and brush all the pieces up and put him in the sack and, and rebuild him in the dressing room afterwards. It looked so horrendous. In one swoop, I could feel all the eyes of the Newcastle directors, John Hall and all the officials turned to me saying, quarter of an hour's gone. This is the genius we've signed to come and play and be wonderful for us this season. And he could be out for three months injured. I was out of that directors box down onto the, down to our dugout, saying to our manager, "You get over to Mark Hine and tell him that if anything like that happens again, he won't just be subbed, but he'll not have any wages that these people have found because he'll be out of the club. It doesn't, it doesn't have to happen." Um, and uh, of course, the we lost four nil. Uh, they scored three in the first quarter of an hour. They could have scored as many as they like. Ferdinand got two. Beardsley got a penalty. Gillespie, the the winger, scored. Ferdinand was wonderful. Um, Genola was Ginola. Uh, I immediately made the cover of our programme for the whole of the season. Les Ferdinand flying through. With a defender on his shoulder who happened to be Jeff Wrightson, who used to play for Newcastle United, and was our skipper, and that was the proud cover of our programme for the whole of the season. Um But it was wonderful to have Ginola and Ferdinand uh, make their Tyneside debuts at Gateshead. It was absolutely frightening when Ginola went down the way he went down. But of course we all knew and got to love him at Newcastle as one of the great, great talents and the great, great abilities. But like a lot of um, foreign players at that time, he was prone to um, roll about 30 yards down the pitch when tackled, and uh, he did just that. Could have rolled all the way back to Tyne's side. I can imagine the fear
0: on your face when that tackle oh, flies in.
1: I mean, you couldn't believe it. but I mean, I had lots of good days with Gates. It, it was hard, hard work at non-league level but it was wonderful I had 11 years with with the club and doing that running that at a night time after working for the Chronicle all day and going straight over at the end of the day to Gateshead to do all the work at night because we trained at night etc was was a tough tough time but um it was wonderful and one of the you know when you get a marvellous moment it makes up for all the, the the difficult moments and all the bad results and everything else and um A wonderful moment came for me, and again it involved a a Newcastle United superstar from the entertainers' era, Paul Bracewell, who was one of the the entertainers of Keegan. Came about in November of two thousand in the FA Cup when we drew Halifax Town. First round. And
0: this is your number. This is number six now in your your number five in your countdown. Is it
1: my numbers right? One, two, three, four, six. Number six. Number six. Um, And we drew Halifax, who at that time were a football league side. Uh, And we were two divisions down. We weren't in the conference, we were a division down from the conference. And We were a bunch of part-timers. They were full-time. Paul Bracewell was their manager. Uh, Now, at the time, Halifax's famous ground, the Shea, was being upgraded uh, a lot of building work was going on and it looked like a building site a lot of the ground looked like a building site um we went there there were absolutely wonderful tours gracious with us etc etc because they knew or the they believed they knew that they just had to turn up the win and who did they get in the second round before they hit the big clubs in the third round Uh, so it's very easy to be gracious to a non-league side when you think oh it's their wonderful day but we're going to tuck them up by as many as we want to only of course it didn't work out quite like that what I had said to our manager uh, Matty at the time was look we're going to play against a club that's Two divisions high, I know, and is a full time, etc. Let us play our side. Make it the eleven players with the greatest ability, because when you're playing non-league, if you work hard, you can make up for a lack of ability against the same sort of opposition and grind the result out. You're not going to do that against the good sides. Let's get the best players on the ball that we've got all into the side and sacrifice some of the work rate so that we can try to match them on ability. And at half-time, unbelievably, we're playing Halifax, we're leading 1-0 against um, a side in the Football League. Now, the interesting thing was that, and I didn't know this until the final whistle, we went in at half-time and all of a sudden, miraculously, we are locked out of our dressing room. We go down the tunnel into the dressing room apart from the dressing room doors locked and we can't go into our dressing room they the halifax dressing room doors not locked they go into their dressing room ours is locked we are sent to sit in the weights room and so all our players are sitting on weights with sweat rolling off them no toilets, none, none of their drinks and there, etc., etc. Uh, oh, we're missing this. We don't know. Oh, somebody's locked it by mistake, etc., uh, etc. Et the ten minutes is up. So we are in a waiters' room because we're winning one nil. Now, in fairness, the manager didn't have to make a team talk. He just had to said, "Look, this is how they're treating you. Uh, you're a non-league side. You have the audacity to be lead, be leading." So you're yeah, yeah, stuck in a weights room. The job was done for us. We went back out and we did have a good side in ability. Paul Proudlocker, would had been a wonderful player at uh, Hartlepool Carlisle... We- Paul Dalton, the winger, was our big, big star. He'd signed for Manchester United uh, under Alex Ferguson and played for them. Steve Bruce was his manager at Huddersfield. Um, And when I was looking to sign Dalton, um, the biggest problem was that uh, he turned it on when his contract was due for renewal. And when he turned it on, he was way, way above our class. Um, Sometimes he decided not to turn down. But on the big one and he ripped uh, he ripped Halifax apart and we wouldn't um, 2-0. So afterwards I find out what's happened in the in the dressing room. And of course later on I went berserk and I went berserk in the press about it. Halifax denied any skullduggery. Obviously, somebody had accidentally locked the dressing room door and gone off with the key in their pocket, and it wasn't a slur; it wasn't intentional, etc., etc. Maybe, maybe not. I felt a different way about it. The interesting thing was that Paul Bracewell, uh, a, a man I've got. An awful lot of time for wonderful player. Uh, although he was chopped off by Billy Whitehurst in a, in, in a match at St James's Park when he played for Everton. And In lots of ways, was more associated with Sunderland than he was with Newcastle because he went and played for them a couple of times. He was the assistant manager at Sunderland when Peter Reid was manager, etc., etc. So not greatly loved perhaps by the hierarchy or the inside people at Newcastle. And evidently when it come across in the press, Newcastle were actually playing Sunderland at St James's Park that very day. Uh, And it takes something for me to miss seeing a derby match, but I had to see my side playing the first round of the FA Cup. The side, when I say my side, the side that I actually owned. Um, But evidently when the result come through and it, it... in the press room, it produced a huge cheer uh, of the local press because Gebo's side had beaten Paul Braceville's side. Uh, and it was a mammoth cheer. In the, and, of course, Brace, who I knew well from playing for Newcastle, and I knew well when I went down to see Peter Reed at Sunderland because he was Peter Reed's number two, came into the director's room after the match and of course I'm ecstatic and I've got my gates of blazer and everything Embrace comes in with his Halifax and I sort of say, Brace, lovely to see you. And he, Mr. Chairman, you did exactly the right thing, called me Mr. Chairman. That's not what he normally called me when he was with Sunderland as assistant manager, but Mr. Chairman, etc., etc." I, I said to everybody at the ground, I said, we're back in Newcastle, it's a short trip from Halifax, Newcastle. when we get to Newcastle, don't go home. We're going out. I said, it's on the gym. We're going out. This is the best result that could happen in my time. And second round of the cup. I got back to Newcastle. I said, right, everybody, when we got off at the International Stadium, over into town to what my favourite restaurant in town, I said, we're going in there. We're going to have a party. So I went down there and I... Got drinks onto the coach as well. The match was over, which we didn't necessarily normally do. we did in these circumstances. So uh, two parts of the wind, when we burst the door open into the restaurant, sort of, hey, great lads. And I suddenly see in the corner a long table of Newcastle United fans in black and white striped shirts. And Newcastle had lost that Day at St James's Park to Sunderland. If you remember, it's when Thomas Solskjaer saved a penalty, uh, and Sunderland won 2-1. Newcastle. I'm suddenly charging in the way as if I've landed on the moon. Uh, thrilled to bits, and I saw fans. And being a Newcastle fan myself, the minute I saw them, I sobered up, and I went straight over. And I said, hey, look, lads, I'm terribly sorry. I know the result at St. James' Park today. Really, my apologies for being full of it. They said, hey, give up. I know what the result was. It gets it. And anyway, somebody out of Sunderland got tucked up today. Bracewell, so we're we're more than pleased. You enjoy it, pal. You have a black and white Tyneside team so you enjoy it and it was great and we had a wonderful night and it must have been a wonderful night because I can't particularly remember the end of it but I didn't want it to end
0: always oh, a sign of a good night that was number five in fact you can tell we're better with words than we are <laughs> with numbers um, on to the final four then we're going to go um, England international G. we're going to head to Wembley yeah. now Yeah. It is concerning any cast, United legend. We we have uh, he's doing quite well in lockdown. I think he's missing the football at Supermark, but other than yeah. that,
1: he's not doing too badly. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, it was interesting because uh, this was uh, nineteen seventy five at Wembley, and I covered the England games, but I was going down in particular because Supermac was Newcastle United centre-forward at the time and was England's centre-forward at the time. They were playing Cyprus, and it was a competitive game. It was in the European Championships. Um, at that stage, Malcolm had one England goal to his, his name which was a significant one. It was against West Germany, who at the time were the world champions. And four days before the Cyprus game, he'd scored against West Germany and we were moving on to Cyprus. And um, I got into the press box at Wembley and one of the first persons I saw was Brian Glanville of the Sunday Times, who was a very well-known, well-respected senior National journalist and a, and a good friend of mine, as it happened, and um, he spotted me. Gibbo, I know why you're down, Malcolm McDonald, etc., etc., and went to great pains in a very loud voice to inform me that while Malcolm McDonald was a very good club centre forward, he was never an international centre forward. Uh, he hadn't the touch, he hadn't the vision, he hadn't the ability. He was just quick. Um, but he wasn't an England centre-forward. So what does Mac do? He scores five goals at Wembley for England, smashes the, the Wembley record for an England player. England win 5-0. He scores all the five. At the end, when he comes off, the scoreboard flashes up and doesn't say England 5-0, it says Mac 5-0. And I turned to Brian Glanville and I said, Brian, big man, I I, I respect your opinion because you've been all over the world, I said, but um, not bad for a big, rough lad who can't play at international level, was it? I said, "Uh, it might look good in the Chronicle tomorrow morning, of course. And and it did exactly that. The interesting thing was... (laughs) and England had a good team There was, you say they're only playing Cyprus but they won 5 nil and he scored all 5 Mike Shannon didn't score Kevin Keegan didn't score who were in the forward line with him and funnily enough Keegan went over to, to Supermark he told me afterwards when, when Supermark completed his hat-trick for 3-0 KK went over and said hey big man that's you got your hat-trick now he said any chance you make a goal for me now and, and Malcolm MacDonald just looked at him and said, Kevin, get your own
0: bloody goals, he said. <laughs> I guess the sad irony is that Soutermach never played at Wembley. Correct.
1: He never played at Wembley for England again. He played at Wembley for Newcastle United, of course, in the 76 League Cup final, having played in the 74 FA Cup final. But never played at Wembley again for England. Um and the great tragedy is that he'd lost the manager he loved and who loved him, who was Alf Ramsey, and he'd got a manager who totally disliked him, which was Don Revy, who had never liked Supermark when he was sent forward for Newcastle, and, and Revy was at Leeds, and it was Supermark against Big Jack Charlton. And uh, he'd threatened him before each game that if he didn't score, he'd be dropped. And he, he said that before West Germany, and, of course, he got one. And he said, so that got him into the Cyprus game, and he he, he got five. And I, they, they never liked each other. And um, when I asked Supermac about it afterwards, he said, hey, listen, Gibber, there's two ways of looking at this. When I scored against West Germany and when I scored against Cyprus, I knew I was playing the next game because he said, hey, you've got to score to play the next game. So he said, I knew I was playing. The other ten weren't certain whether they are going to be picked, but I knew I was playing the next game. But uh, an interesting side effect to the, the, this five that he got was Super was a very big friend of mine in those days, uh, of course. And um, we used to eat in a place called Roy's Two Room, which was just down behind the Gallagher End, it's in James's Park. Sadly, no longer there, and Roy was the boss there. And uh, just prior to Malcolm going down to join up with the England squad, we went to have a meal in the restaurant, and Roy was in with his girlfriend, and they come and joined us at the table, and the talk inevitably got round to going away with England after talking about Newcastle United. And Roy, being the flamboyant character he was, turned round to his girlfriend and said, love, when we watch this game with Cyprus, he said, every time that fella scores for, for England, I'm going to make love to you. And and he's, of course the girls said, oh yeah, yeah, sure, oh yeah. And, and of course, Mark Madone scored once for England in his whole career at that time, scored five in an hour and a half. Um, we didn't see, When we come back, we didn't see Roy in the two rooms for about three weeks after that, I think he was probably lying down in a darkened room trying to recover. But uh, we had a lot of fun about that, and there were there were great great days. And um, Brian Glanville maybe thought afterwards should have spoken before the game or waited till afterwards. <laughs>
0: Insight is a wonderful thing. Yes, On absolutely. to uh, number three now.
1: Yeah.
0: And we have a priest. Well, you know, we have a trip to Malta.
1: Yes. And the weird and wonderful tale of it involves match fixing. Oh, I, I mean the, the stories are crazy, aren't they? We've got George Best getting shot by the IRA. We've got Newcastle playing in Pexidoza Dozer with uh, Magnamay under me table. We've we've got uh, we've got Super Mac. We've got uh, and now we've got match fixers trying to fix a Newcastle United game in Malta in a pre-season friendly. Um, I don't know whether there were just lovely times or whether I I just got myself in the middle of everything that was crazy, and um, and this involves we're going back to one of my great mates, which is Mike Mahoney, who of course was got the brick on the head in the riot, which I haven't recalled there uh, in Bohemian uh, when we played Bohemians. This was as we were approaching the 1977-78 season. Uh, we just finished fifth. In, ...in the league to qualify for the UEFA Cup... ...and the pre-season trip was to Malta... ...the idea was always to get a sunshine break... ...before the season started... ...now Malta was an island where... ...it wasn't going to be too taxing... ...in terms of the quality of the opposition... ...it was going to be lovely for training... ...because it was going to be nice and warm... ...and it was the fanatics... ...the Maltese people are fanatic, fanatical about football... ...and they fanatical about English football... Italian football, the other football, a fanatical about. And in fact, I became the president of the Maltese supporters club, Newcastle United's Maltese supporters club. I become their president, fella called Louis Azapaldi who uh, ran it. I'm, I'm laughing, yeah, John, because you get everywhere. Oh, yeah, well, well, I'm now doing the same. I'm now doing the same for the current Hong Kong supporters club. Having not been over with Shiva I work with them in Hong Kong now. And not that I want to be over in Hong Kong at the moment. I isn't that, but uh, yeah. So I was, I was president of their supporters club. We went over to play two friendlies against Slimer Wanderers and Floriana. Um, And we were staying in the best hotel on the the island. Um, And we were all in the lounge at midday. Newcastle had trained early in the morning, so it didn't get too hot in the afternoon were in the lounge having coffee the players had come in in their track suits and were mingling having their drink of coffee a a, a sup of water whatever Uh, and a lot of fans were hanging about because they adored all the big time footballers that they saw on television and this Maltese guy came over to me and said excuse me which one of those is the Newcastle United goalkeeper so I saw Mike Mahoney super goalie standing in the corner with with a big uh, Busby haircut that he had in in those days and said that's him there the fellow with the Busby on well, alright thanks he said and he went away took no more notice of it went on and um, then as people started filtering away and going upstairs to get changed before that lunch I spotted Mahoney and I, I went across to say hey how, how are you doing and how's the training going and all that and I say by the way a fan wanting an autograph I said I've just sent the guy over and he said well actually Gibbo no no, it wasn't," he said. I said, "Well, what was it about?" He said, "No, he said, no, the bugger only wanted me to throw in a couple of goals in the match." I said, "You what? Uh, you know." By now, mate I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. Now, they love a gamble. The Maltese people love a gamble, like they love the football. They love a gamble. A little bet on on two flies crawling up a window, which one's going to get the top of the window first. And even though this was a a preseason non-competitive game. There was a few quid to be made if you bet on the local side, which was part-timers, beating a First Division side that had just qualified for Europe, i.e. Newcastle United. Um and I said to Mahoney. Where? Now, there's nobody straighter than Mahoney. Hell would freeze over before Mahoney would even contemplate throwing a match. There was not a chance of it happening. But he was asked. And, of course, if you're going to nubble somebody, nubble a goalkeeper. You nubble the centre-half... He might let the centre-forward through, but the keeper can still save it. Noble the keeper, and if he doesn't save it, the ball's in the back of the net. So you look for the keeper. There was absolutely no chance of it happening, and I said, and he was outraged, but he felt at that stage, look, I ain't going to report it to the authorities, the Newcastle United manager or the authorities, and we'll suddenly have a federal case throughout Europe. It'll be in all the papers. Etc., etc., and I'm not going to do that. But can you imagine? We beat Slimer easily, 4 0. But when we played Floriana, we drew 1 1. Can you imagine that if we'd lost that game? And Mahoney had been approached to throw it, and that become common knowledge. And, of course, once everything was all over, inevitably, Gibbo did carry the story that this this had happened out there. Um, can you imagine the sort of kerfuffle uh, there would have been? And uh, quite, quite staggering... Um, And I must say, when I become president of the uh, supporters' club, I quickly checked that the guy that had tried to fix the match wasn't also a member of the Newcastle United supporters' club, but he wasn't.
0: (laughs) Again, just utterly, utterly bizarre. Um, We're going to fast forward a few decades now and we're going to... On to your number two, and it is one of the most memorable games at St James's Park. It would have gone down as one of the most uh, disappointing performances that we've ever seen in St James' Park, had it not played out the way it did, yeah, had it played yeah. out the way it had gone in the first 20 minutes or so. We're talking about Newcastle United 4, Arsenal 4. Yes,
1: yes. I mean, quite, quite, quite incredible. Uh, the greatest comeback ever, I guess. Um, it was February the 5th, 2011, and a lot of the younger supporters will probably remember this one. Um, and it was quite sensational. I mean... Uh, humiliating in the first half. I mean, Theo Walcott put Arsenal up within 44 seconds, the first goal. They were 2-0 up with a header in three minutes. And then uh, Robin van Persie scored in 10 minutes and 26 minutes. So with less than half an hour gone, Newcastle were 4-0 down. And it was as embarrassing as it was likely to get. Um, This was an age where uh, Andy Carroll had just been sold to Liverpool for £36 million. had been injured in in a defeat to Fulham on the Wednesday prior to the game. So Newcastle didn't have the two main strikers in the side. Uh, They were 4-0 down in half an hour. What was there to look forward to? Absolutely nothing but complete humiliation. What
0: I remember about that was I was waiting to go into a cinema to watch the Kings' speech and the last thing I did was I checked my phone and it was 4-0 down to Arsenal. Um, and uh, I just remember thinking, oh well, I've got Van Persie as my captain on my fantasy side. So
1: <laughs> you swine, Newcastle supporter, and you're pleased for Van Persie. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you have to look for the positives, and then uh, get out the sta- get out the cinema after watching the King's Speech. Very good film, and uh, find it's four four. I had I
1: had to check. I hadn't looked at the wrong thing on on, on my phone. It was I mean. Uh- and it was the manner of being four down at half-time, which was the killer. I mean, Coluccini was completely outpaced on the first one. Uh, Jose Enrique stood up Van Persie for the third goal. Uh, Van Persie ghosted between Williamson and Colo to score the fourth. It was almost like... Shooty in it was almost like do what you want to do. It was almost like Newcastle United at Manchester City you in the Etihad. But but it was like that. that. That that was. I felt the same watching that as I did watching this. What was really interesting and fun with hindsight for me was that going into the press room at half time, I always sit at St James's Park and do to this day next to Superman. uh So we're in the press box. ..for this game in Supermax sitting next to me. Now, it's a a particularly poignant game for Supermax... ..because it's Newcastle v Arsenal, which, while he had other clubs... ..there is two major clubs of his career. When he was a top, top player, he was centre-forward for Newcastle... ..and then for Arsenal. So, there are two loves of his life, uh, but... There's no question that having come and lived up here since, and every England cap he ever got was at Newcastle United, not at Arsenal, that he's a Newcastle fan. And when we went down at half-time, he was decimated at the 4-0. He said, "He said this is humiliation. This is only half-time against Norsen Wenger side. This is humiliation. And it's not just... It's like we said about Manchester City 5-0 recently. It's not just that you're getting beat, it's the manner in which you're getting beat. And we'd sacrifice giving up goals to a good side. You don't give up goals to Arsenal, who at that time were a good side. You don't give up goals now to Manchester City, who at this time is a good side. It's bad enough playing for them without giving them up. And we give them up. And, you know, and because he wasn't working that day, he was only watching it socially, Malcolm, sitting next to me. And he got more agitated and more agitated as he went and got his cup of tea at half time and having a cup of tea and a biscuit. And he turned to me, he said, you know, Gibber, I'm not going to put up with this. I can't stand this. This is absolutely dire. It's purgatory to watch. He says, I'm on my toes. And he said, he's gone. And he's out. And he's away home. And it, we're four nil down and, and he's away home. And I talked <laughs> I talked to him afterwards. I talked to him afterwards and he said he's on the car on the way home and he couldn't help after a little while sticking the, the, the report on the car radio. And it's 4-1, it's 4-2, it's 4... By the time he gets home to the coast, Newcastle have got a 4-4 draw. The greatest comeback that Supermax never seen because he'd, he'd left the ground in, in as. I said to him, right, you're some sort of Newcastle United legend you mate, walking out when at half time because you haven't enough faith in the boys that they're going to massacre Arsenal 4-0 in the second half. Um, but it, it was one of those days and I, I could understand where supermarket come from and perhaps if I'd been there like him not to work... I would have felt like getting on my toes because if they repeat that second half, that's 8-0. And that is massive humiliation. But if you remember, and you probably do, even though you were at the films, uh, one of the turning points was within five minutes of the start of the second half, the referee filled out, sent off the Abbey for training Barton who and, and then shoving Nolan. And of course, Barton had gone in and tackled a tackle on him. I and mean, we know Joy. Joy really could cause trouble in an empty house, and the tackle was a little bit naughty, and of course he, he was known to be a bit lippy in his time with Joy. He, he always had one or two things to say for himself, and I I think he he passed words, but he certainly reeled in the Arby, who responded to him, shook him warmly by the throat, uh, pushed Nolan out the way, who went in to rescue Joy. Not that I ever thought Joey ever needed rescue, he could look after himself, and he got he got sent off. But there was still 40 minutes to go, but Arsenal had a 4-0 lead with 10 men. And they only had less than half a game to see out, so you still thought Arsenal would win the thing. But all of a sudden, you know, um, Leon Best is playing centre-forward for Newcastle. Uh, He was brought down, penalty... He then scored and was wrongly chalked off offside. He wasn't offside. He scored from eight yards and he wasn't offside. Um, Joey Barton, who had instigated the sending off of Diaby, then scored two penalties. Um, And Newcastle are within a goal of Arsenal. And I'm thinking at the Times... Ah, well, we've scored one, we've scored two, four two. 4 It doesn't look the humiliation it was. That's great. And you go to fourth 3 and you think, can't I? No, no, but hey, we've got we we're, we're credit back. And then what happens? Absolutely unbelievable. Three minutes to go. The ball is... There's a foul by Rousiki on Barton who took the free kick, swung over the free kick into a crowded penalty area it's headed out by an Arsenal defender. Uh, and the ball's dropping 30 yards out and it's dropping to Czech Teori, who is known for breaking up play, not for his creative ability. It's falling on his weaker left foot. If he has one touch, the chance is gone because the, the space will have been closed down. He drives the ball with his left foot, catches it, a peach and it arrows into the back of the net. check Teoti, the only goal, blessing, that he scored for Newcastle United in 156 games for Newcastle, the only goal score he scored was the greatest. And he took off like a man possessed, and didn't we all? I mean, I'm in the press box, and Wallace had a rule in the old days in the press box that he was supposed to be neutral. You didn't show your feelings. You were supposed to be neutral. Of course, we weren't inside, but you're supposed to be. But I was up shouting and screaming at the goal when Ty- Tyote's goal went in. Newcastle only getting a home draw, by the way. They, they don't win. But my jove, it felt like a win, did it not? And it felt like a huge defeat for them. Toyote set off, chased by the whole team and ran all the way from their penalty area to our penalty area before he fell on the ground. Everybody else jumped on top of him Harper ran out his goal, there's a huge pile of bodies, and he leapfrogs up in the air and collapses on top of all the bodies. Harper. In doing so, he just about decapitates Leon Best, who is then injured and had to go off with the injuries sustained by his own goalkeeper in the celebrations, and has to go back. And it was the it was the greatest comeback ever, but the greatest win it never was because, of course, we didn't win. We only And we were never ahead in the whole game. But it was absolutely... I mean, to report on it, the game had absolutely everything from a reporter's point of view, as from a fan's point of view. But one of the most incredible games... I mean, I've reported on Newcastle for 54 years and broken now. And I can't... I can find... Wonderful games, like the comeback against Oospest, where we actually ended up winning a European trophy. But this was a different dimension and wasn't likely to happen. And uh, Dyson on the cake for me was a super Mister Doll.
0: <laughs> He's definitely kept that one quiet. So, uh, he certainly has. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll, we might as well announce this now before we dive into your oh. number one. Yeah. We are planning a very special giveaways Corner um, and we hope that Supermac will join us and it's going to be all about Malcolm. Sure.
1: So yeah. we might have to bring that one up. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would prefer it to be brought up repeatedly, if at all possible.
0: Now of us reminding him I, I, that. I keep, what sorry. we should
1: do is maybe we should, we should
0: sit down, social distance and rewatch the game and ask him what he thought about the second half. Well, we we, we, we should
1: show him the second half because he never saw it. <laughs>
0: um, so that was your, your number two there. Let's just quickly go through the list that we've gone through so far. So, at number 10, we had how things have changed during your time.
1: Actually, uh, yeah.
0: Number nine, we had IRA threatening to shoot George Best and George Best doing the best thing possible, not for Newcastle, but showing, you know, yeah. that football, that's where he'll do his talk and he scored as he beat Newcastle 1-0 with Manchester United. We then have number seven, which is a riot.
1: Yeah, in Dublin.
0: Yeah, that's the one. We have then, which I think is probably my favourite story, we have Benny Arentoff ringing up to put through the match report to a a Danish newspaper after the first couple final. It
1: seemed that the best goal of the five that afternoon was the Newcastle equaliser, 2 2, who was scored by. Oh, Benny, it was scored by, yeah.
0: We then have David Ginola and Gateshead, and you having um, nearly a breakdown as one of your players chopped them in half on his debut. he did.
1: And beat and uh, beating Burswell is uh, to follow in the FA Cup, of course. It is. Number number what did he say that was? Number four? Number
0: five. Number five. We, we need to get so. these yeah, we need to get these maths right, yeah. these numbers right. Yeah. Number four, Supermark grabbing five in Cyprus. And Brian Glenn will say he can't play. <laughs> number three, a match fixing offer in Malta. Number two, as we've just discussed, the greatest comeback arguably of Premier League. History in Newcastle
1: United for Arsenal for and. Number one was a Northern Area flyweight boxing uh, contest that instead of taking place at New St. James's Hall, took place in St. James's Park itself. It's the fight of Kieran Dyer and Bowie Lee Bowie uh, back in April of 2005. And while most people will remember that, it was absolutely Astonishing from the point of view and and particular from a reporting point of view because all you could see was story heaped upon story heaped upon story even afterwards when the game was over at the press conference and what happened afterwards it, it was quite astonishing uh, I quite imagine
0: astonishing. it's one of those moments where you literally turn
1: to the person next to you and go you, you saw that, didn't you? Did I mean, that really happened. Yeah, did that really? I mean, it, it was incredible. We we used with tempers gone. We used with spats. I mean, we know famously of Alan Shearer with Roy Keane and and Neil Lennon. Of course, we uh, we we were used with Newcastle United hard men like Billy Whitehurst and John McNamee and Joey Barton uh, chinning the opposition. Uh, but never each other That uh, the, the chin, the opposition But never each other Big Mac, evidently when Big McNamee, when he was at Celtic um, Did end up slapping his own goalkeeper Around the face during a game For something that had gone wrong But it was a smack, not a punch If it had been a punch The bloke would have been in the hospital for a month um, And we know of Batty and Le with Blackburn If you remember, against Sporting uh, Moscow but two Newcastle United guys fighting and beating the living daylight. I mean out. this is the difference isn't it it was
0: it, fists it, they, were, they oh. were going for one another totally. I mean we, we we saw Son and Hugo Lloris having a little bit of fisticuffs and I think yeah, the reaction listen, yes that's right from Newcastle fans it's was like really, yeah, yeah they, call that a fight nah come on this is a fight and then they, you see the gif and you see Shearer rushing in and pulling them apart and Gareth Barry getting in it as well and yeah. Just uh, what I what I do love. Uh, there's many things I love about this story, and we've got I've got a few things written down. What I do love though is Alan Shearer as uh, so the referee puts a red card up to both of them, and Shearer's he's he's arguing with the referee, and he's he's said, "How oh, was that a red card? What were you doing? You can't send them off." I would love to ask Alan if he if he <laughs> what was going through his head at that moment
1: because I did ask him. What did he say? He he thought Bowyer was a send off because he instigated it, but that Dyer was only defending himself and and shouldn't have been sent off. And the interesting thing, let me go... I'll come to that in a minute, because it is a good, good point. And the story only become a great story... Well, it didn't. It was a great story visually by what you saw. But then when you checked out with... Everybody that was involved, what was going on, it becoming even more intriguing, intriguing story. If you remember that, I mean, it was a disastrous afternoon in everything possible because we were playing Aston Villa, not our most lovable club that we ever play against. We were 3-0 down. And if you remember, we'd already had a man sent off, Stephen Taylor. He was thrilled to bits with what happened afterwards because it took the pressure off him. Because he went down as if he'd been shot in, like a George Best uh, with the I.R.A. incident. If you remember, he handled the ball in the penalty area to give away a penalty and immediately thought to himself, what can I do to pretend that I didn't I didn't handle the ball? <clears throat> so he went down as if he'd been decapitated if, if he'd been shot in the penalty area it was the most ludicrous thing you'd ever seen if I remember correctly I was I was
0: quite young now. I want to about 13, 14 I think not to make you feel old of course John but uh, I was in I was in, in the Canary Islands, and we'd gone down with the probe Newcastle United shirts on I, I think despite the fact that it was probably about 32, 34 degree heat I think we we managed to find some jackets rather quickly to cover up them Newcastle United shirts I, I bet
1: you did I bet you did. But, I mean, it it was a ludicrous sending off uh, the way Stephen made a meal of the thing to try to get away with. And he fooled nobody, either on the terraces, the Aston Villa players, or the referee. Uh, And so he had trudged off before this happened. Now, the background, which you you remember, was that, and I talked to Dyer a lot about it afterwards, Bowyer wasn't too keen to talk about it, but... Bowyer was keep showing for the ball. He was keep checking out, coming short whenever Dyer had the ball. And Dyer would look up and ping it the opposite way to a Newcastle player. And uh, Bowyer came short right in front of him. He would turn left and ping it 60 yards out to the guy at outside left. Bowyer showed again, didn't get the ball, et cetera. So Bowyer started going berserk and saying, I've come, I've shown, why wouldn't you give me the ball? Why don't you give me the ball? And, and getting on at him verbally. And, of course, the, the really the lighting of the touch paper was when Dyer was eventually pressed as to why he wouldn't pass to him. Is When he said, not in these languages, in industrial language, he didn't pass to him because he was rather a poor player. And, and, and of, of course, when he said that, Lee Bowyer, that was the red mist was down, and that's when he set off at a rapid rate of knots towards him. And Dyer said, I saw him coming, and I could see on his face. He said, and I was—I thought, I'm, I'm going to have to smack him. And then I thought, no, I'm not. I should really get out of the road. He said, but I, I had to defend myself. Well, I talked to Shearer about it afterwards. And he reckoned, that the two lads didn't reckon, but he reckoned there was a lot of niggle in training with the two of them often because in some ways they were both fighting for the same position in the team and they both wanted to play centre midfield and often to accommodate accommodate them both Dyer was played really on the right right wing which he didn't want to play and he wanted to play for England and he wanted to be in the centre of the action but it was a little bit, remember when we had Denver Bourne and Sissé and one played center forward and the other played wide and sometimes it switched two played way and um, and really it was two for one position but they they played Dyer wide to get them both in the side and this was a bit of a niggle with Dyer and um it was actually Dyer that that ripped the shirt of of bower but he wasn't attacking him he was trying to hold him off by the shirt and as you say gathered Barry jumped in on Bowie. Shearer jumped in on, on Dyer. Um, and really, if either... I mean, really, neither of them could punch their way out of a paper bag. Like, that was a, the only redeeming feature that it wasn't McNamee against um, Jack Charlton or something of that nature.
0: One yeah. man who could punch his way out of a paper bag is the manager at that time was Graham Souness. Yeah. One, of the, one of the hardest you know, midfielders as you know, the, the games I've ever seen. And what, and, and Alan Shearer, who could punch his way out of a paper bag and all. What strikes me as strange is that he was a very disciplined manager, so to have that lack of discipline running through two key players, I, I mean, he must have been absolutely raging. Mean, we know he was raging because he offered to fight
1: them, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the amazing thing was that um, they were dragged apart. I mean, Tyre, bless him, Tyre said afterwards, He was, uh, And Shiva was saying um, to the referee, you can't send him off. He he, he didn't say you should send Barry off. He said you can't send Die off. He was defending himself. He wasn't an aggressor. What do you expect him to do if somebody's trying to thump him? And... Dyer said afterwards he didn't realise you could get sent off for striking one of your own players. So I said, oh, so, Kieran, from that point of view, you can beat the hell out of anybody you like as long as he's got the same shirt on as you've got on, but you can't out of the opposition. He said, he, I didn't realise I could get sent off, you know, because I, was, uh, I wasn't I was fighting the opposition. And afterwards, when Shearer went in the dressing room and, and, and sort of... When Shearer actually went in the dressing room afterwards, he ripped the head off both of them because we were about to play in the FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United a couple of weeks later and he realised they would both be suspended for that game. And this was about Shearer's last chance to win a, a medal with Newcastle United. I think he retired a couple of seasons later, and he ripped into both of them and said, "You selfish so and so! You know this is going to go on, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Uh, Soonest went in immediately and said, "If if I'm going to go and watch this again on television, and if it shows what I saw with my eyes." I'm going to come down here and rip both your heads off and I'm going to fight you both. And and Dyer said I was more terrified of that than I was of the suspension or anything else that was likely to happen to me. Unbelievably, Freddie Shepard, <laughs> who was chairman at the time, went in the dressing room as well, and 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 they thought, oh God, maybe you know we've had the ma- we've had the skipper Alan Shearer threatening us because we're going to miss the semi final of the cup. We've had the manager saying, when I come back, I'm going to chin the pair of you. And now the chairman's in. And and Sheppard went up to Kevin Dyer and said, "You're not to blame, mate." He said, "You should have chinned them." <laughs> this is the chairman of a football club not your fault mate You attacked you you should have chinned him he said uh, <laughs> but and of course as we as we well know I'm, you're watching all this and you're only finding out these sort of things afterwards when you're talking to Shiva when you're talking to Sunes, when you're talking to Dyer um, etc but the next thing we know we're thinking we'll go downstairs in the press room and I think this is going to be a bit of a tasty press conference when when um, Soonest comes in here. We, we've lost 3 we, 0. We've finished with eight men. Oh, and by the way, uh, talk to Stephen Taylor afterwards. Stephen Taylor's getting a shower, but haven't been sent off, getting a shower. And he walks back in the dressing room and having had a shower and sees those two sitting in the dressing room. And he says, They came over already, lads. He, he thought they, they were the first in, and they said we're both being sent off. He says, my, that's a relief. That's a pressure off me, he says. <laughs> but, I mean, it was absolutely crazy. And we we'll walk in the, the press conference and the manager walks in and soon as handsome bloke, immaculate in his gear, looks the partner, the hair out of the place. And each side of him is Diane Bowyer, who have both got suits on, White shirt, Newcastle United tie, look immaculate. Sit on either side of him and are forced to face the press. Um, and fair enough, so they should be. Absolutely decimated. Diaz just about in tears. And I asked him about it. I mean, he's dissolved to crying. And, and after, about afterwards he said, I'm having a tough enough time with Newcastle United fans. At that particular time, he's getting played out of position. They think he's a bit of a spice boy, you know, like the Liverpool spice lads that went to the cup final in the white suits. They're thinking he's one of the jack lads. He's down on the quayside a lot. He said, I'm just beginning to try to win over Newcastle fans and I'm involved in something like this. And he's just about in tears. And as soonest as comes out at the time and blames Bowyer for it, which is, which is quite an interesting thing and says that it, uh, he is the guilty party, as, as pictures would show. And um, it was interesting because Bowyer got suspended by the FA for seven games and a 30 grand fine. He, the club fined him six weeks' wages and he ended up in the Mags court in Newcastle where he got a 600 quid fine and a 1,000 quid costs for physically... Having to go Dyer, who didn't want to press charges, wouldn't press charges, etc. Dyer got a three-match ban, and Newcastle actually appealed against Dyer's red card, and the appeal was overturned, but hence the chairman coming in saying, "It's not your fault." Um, but uh, <coughs> And of course, what did we get? We're always here now with Donald Trump with his fake news. We got the fake sh- handshake on Monday at the training ground, didn't we? Bowie and Dyer shaking hands with each other. It's the one
0: thing, though. Let's let's play, play a little game. Let's test you. What's the one thing that you remember, though, from that press conference, which I think everybody else pinpoints? They're both, the three of them are sitting there. It's a very stern, it's a very... Uh, you know, the atmosphere, you could cut it with a knife, you guys are all there with your pens and papers, and who should pop onto the stage with a cup burner?
1: Oh, yes, 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 Catherine the tea lady, who oh, was a... a, a <laughs> <laughs> <she's>, <laughs> every game, she used to come, whoever the Newcastle United manager was, and in the middle of his press conference, or just before it started or anything, she would walk up with a cup of tea and put it down in front of the manager. And the manager Thank you so much. A, and she adored Jackie Milburn, who was originally her own. She had a photograph, who was in the press corps at that time, because a photograph of him. And then she had her favourites, like Bobby Robson and whatever. And we sit down for what is going to be a court hearing, uh, the most sombre thing possible the most humiliating thing that's possibly happened in Newcastle United's history two players fighting each other for what seemed like an eternity on the pitch it wasn't it? 32nd thing and in the middle of it all totally oblivious to the the impact this was going to have on all of football Dio Dear Will Cather in front with a cup of tea, puts it down in front of the manager and says, You know, there you are, are, Mr. Sooness. And I think she turned to them and asked if they wanted a cup of tea. (laughs) It was absolutely wonderful. It was like pantomime at Christmas. It really was. Um, But it's Newcastle, isn't it? You know, we've gone through however long this has taken, 10 more, 10. Moments of total originality, you know, the, 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 this fight and everything else that happened in Newcastle. And we could have done another 10.
0: Crazy, but it's, I, that doesn't cover everything that we've talked about. You know, I mean, yes, you can say that's, that's crazy, but then you've got Sutomac, which is just brilliant. You know, you've got, yeah. um, like we say, we've got Benny ringing in the port, which is just unbelievable. George
1: so Best. You know, some fantastic moments there. Uh, the, the riot with the bricks in, in, in Dublin. It was the things match-fixing in Malta. You couldn't make it up. If you made it up and presented it to Hollywood as a film script, the guy that would take one look at it and say, no, it's not realistic enough. You've got to keep some semblance of reality to make it acceptable. Who would play you in the movie? Um, well, once when they come round... Um, at the Chronicle, they used to bring a load of kids around to be with that school teachers to sort of show what was happening. And um, they used to always come across the sports desk because, of course, kids, Newcastle United and all that. So they come across, and I could hear the, the lady the, the, that was taking them around. She said to these kids, She said, um, and this is the Newcastle United, the press party, and, and that there is John Gibson. And this little kid in a loud voice said, Oh, is his brother, uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, <laughs> to this day. So I guess Mel Gibson would have to play me. Yeah, I mean, good. he is a brave heart, Mel Gibson, so I think <laughs> we should. I'm sure I will try and get that organised. Well, there,
0: ladies and gents, you have it. We have Gibbo's top 10 craziest moments covering Newcastle United. We hope you've enjoyed it. And like we say, we should, fingers crossed, be back with a very special episode of Gibbo's Corner sometime next month. In the meantime... Keep safe, enjoy
1: yourself. John, thanks for joining us. Delighted, always delighted, Please Remember to like and subscribe.